Greetings, friends. Welcome back to the Critically Acclaimed Podcast, the film review podcast, where we review films. Also, kaboom! Yay! Although, although Oppenheimer is next week. Oh! Yeah, so we're not reviewing Oppenheimer this week. So that's uh, why but... I'm kabummed. <laughs> no, I have no idea if it's I'm, any good or not. I'm we'll ka- find out. I'm kabarbied. Um... <laughs> My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic. I write I'm for Cobb Slash Web. Film. What are you, what's your name? Well, because Cobweb is coming out that weekend, too, and no, one, no one's talking about it. Cobweb, that's right. Cobwebbed. I'm Cobwebbed. Yeah, the um, next week is is the, the Barbenheimer phenomenon. We'll yeah. save all our comments until then. This week, uh, we're reviewing a couple new... Uh, oh, wait, first introduce yourself. Oh, yeah, my name is William DeBiani. I am a, a critic. I write for The Rap. I write for Slash Film. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And uh, yeah, we're, we're reviewing a, a whole spate of new films. You yeah. saw more than I did this week. Yeah, which is uh, usually the other way around, so I'm going to enjoy mm-hmm. this while it lasts. Uh, yeah, this week we're reviewing Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Uh, we're which re- is Part 7. <laughs> well, I, I, I hate, Part 8 I if you include nonsense. Mission Impossible versus the mob. I suppose. Well, no, because this is part of the same continuity, so they can say Part part 7, I think it's still accurate. Uh, that, but that... I said Part 7, not the seventh film. I understand that. However... Mm. The first mission, you know, we'll talk about this in a second. All right. <laughs> then we'll just talk about the movies we're going to talk about. Okay, right. so we're doing, uh, we're also reviewing uh, the new horror remake, Final Cut, uh, a remake of the Japanese horror comedy, One Cut of the Dead, directed by Michelle Hazanavicius, who won an Oscar for directing The Artist. Yeah, that came out. <laughs> he, he remade One Cut of the Dead. Uh, the new uh, Sundance comedy, Theater Camp, uh, and uh, the new documentary, Black Ice, and also a new horror film on Shudder. Called Quicksand. Quicksand. Uh, but yeah, let's just jump right into Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Uh, there are seven Tom Cruise movies mm-hmm. in the Mission Impossible franchise. There was also a movie that came out in the 1960s called Mission Impossible vs. The Mob. Mission Impossible was an incredibly popular television series in the 1960s. It lasted like over 170 episodes. It won the Emmy for Best Dramatic Series. Um, and it was so popular that they would take two-part episodes of popular shows in the 60s and sometimes released them as theatrical films overseas. This happened for, I believe it was a two-part episode of Mission Impossible called The Council. And I recently wrote about that for Slash Film. And um, you know what? That show kicks ass. (laughs) That's the one thing that bums me out about Mission Impossible is that all the other, like, nostalgia properties or TV remakes or whatever, they tend to call more attention to the, the history of it. Like, Oh, there's a new hmm. Star Wars. There's a new Star Trek movie out. Let's all talk about the original series again, or let's yeah, well, put put that out on Paramount Plus. Uh, and like, no one talks about the original Mission Impossible anymore. That's kind of a bummer, I, I, really. I suppose so. I think because uh, Star Trek uh, has always benefited from Star Trek in particular mm. has always benefited from uh, its syndication deals. Sure. It's always been in reruns. There has never been a time when Star Trek was not available to us. Mm. When uh, uh, Star Trek started to go on uh, streaming, it would just spread out across streaming as soon as the as soon as it could across most of the streaming services right. before there was even paramount plus it was okay yeah i know it was on netflix all time so it's always been yeah. very active uh mm. when you come to something like mission impossible that's seen as a little bit uh moribund because mm. uh they don't do that that same thing yeah. you can't find mission impossible everywhere also yeah. mission impossible has a little bit of an oblique mythology it has a rotating cast of characters mm-hmm. peter graves was in most of the seasons but he wasn't in the first one yeah leonard nimoy was in some of the seasons but he wasn't uh, throughout the series and it had that law and order thing where for the most part you didn't know anything about the backstory of the characters every yeah, week yeah. was a mission and it was just about the mission it seems absolutely impossible how are they going to make it work how are they going to figure it out um and listen riveting tv 
Yeah. Really, really good. When the, Mission Impossible the, was on its A game, awesome the, show. The, the mystery was a big part of it. It yeah. was, you know, they would assemble a team, but it wasn't always the same team. Yeah. Usually uh, it was mostly the same m- team. Mostly the same team. But then they'd bring uh, in, like, an extra expert or something yeah, once in yeah. a while. Uh, uh, which uh, may end the mission, first Mission Impossible movie from 1996, mm-hmm. or I guess the second Mission Impossible the, movie. The first, the first, the first like, one was Mission Impossible versus the Mob. Uh, the, but, the, first, the first, like, reboot, because there was Mission Impossible in the 1960s. There was a reboot of Mission Impossible on TV in the 80s, only lasted two seasons. Apparently yeah. it was doing rather well, but they kept shuffling it around the schedule and nah. kind of screwed it over. Um, and then, yeah, they've been talking about doing like a big budget, new, not recycled feature film for a while. Been in development hell for a long time. And then it finally came together with Brian De Palma directing, great choice, Tom Cruise, really a weird choice. He didn't do like spy thrillers. It was no, but he did. He, he, did, he did, like, did suspense psychological films. kind of movies. He also did The Untouchables, mm. which was a big hit, and that was a big dramatic. It was a TV adaptation. Yeah, you know, The Untouchables was one of oh, the best yeah, TV adaptations TV of all time. So I think yeah. that if you look at it from Untouchables to Mission Impossible, it makes sense. Right. If you look at it from Raising Kane to Mission Impossible, less so. <laughs> right. Um, or, but, or or Sisters or any of his like, yeah. earlier movies. But uh, that Brian De Palma movie, huge hit. Mm. did something that no nostalgia adaptation would ever be allowed to do today. And that's change the premise. Yeah. Uh, rip yeah, the premise out. Uh, like, just just rip it to shreds. And I think it's the mo- the movies, that first movie's move, that mm-hmm. kind of changed the way uh, audiences wanted to perceive the original show. Because yeah. the, the movie essentially destroyed the original show, very deliberately. Yeah, like uh, in it, the opening sequence. Yeah, in the opening sequence, it assembled the team. Yeah. Uh, Jim Phelps is there. That's the Peter Graves character. Yeah, John Voight uh, was playing the character from the show, implying mm. that it was part of the continuity. Uh, um, and, uh, and like everything that happened in the show had happened in the past. So yeah, um, and yeah, Jim Phelps says, "Here's your mission. You need to go get this this uh, weapons deal." The story's a little confusing, but the yeah. uh, this uh, like black marketeer mm-hmm. wants a list uh, has half of a list of names mm-hmm. of all of IMF's spies. Yeah, there's the he has the code names, but he has the real names that matches to it. So yeah, so it's, it's half to... of that half is useless. The other half is actually. Probably very useful on its own, just but, on its own. But, but yeah, having case, them both would put it, would compromise everybody. So Tom uh, Cruise, but, Emilio Estevez, mm. uh, Kristen Scott Thomas, yeah. um, like yeah. just a solid Emmanuel Bear. Emmanuel Bear back and, when uh, she was a big deal, yeah. And uh, oh, who's the other lady in that? I one? think she was a Yugoslavian actress whose name yeah. I don't remember right now. No, but, yeah, I don't she, remember. She, she, she's not a big star. Uh, no, but in she the was, United States. She was good in the movie. Um, yeah, they were a team. They were going to uh, do the impossible mission, and then one by one, all of them get killed in the opening sequence, except for a new guy. In e- the movie, Ethan Hunt is in, the new guy. In the movie, he'd been on the team for a while, but n- not in the show. Totally new character. So this would be like uh, if they did a Transformers movie, and they killed all the Transformers you liked and replaced them with... Oh, wait, that's Transformers the movie. Yeah, yeah nobody liked that. Everyone hated uh, that. <laughs> Well, I remember uh, you you made the the apt comparison, another Star yes. Trek comparison. Like if they made a Star Trek movie, yeah, and it was about the the main crew, mm-hmm. and uh, and there was also this new character like Ensign Jones, yeah, and they said, okay, we have this mission, and then they all went on their mission, and all of the original cast was just killed off except for Ensign Jones, and now Ensign Jones is the star of the entire motion picture franchise, mm. and that- a new generation of film goers doesn't care. 
They don't care. They like Ensign Jones better than any of the other characters. Yeah. And at the end of the first Mission Impossible movie, Big uh-huh. Twist, Jim Phelps was revealed to be the big bad. He was the one manipulating everything from the start. So imagine if Captain Kirk was the villain mm-hmm. of the new Star Trek movie that this Ensign Jones had to take down. And not Mirror Universe or anything like that. No excuse. He wasn't taken over by the Borg mm-hmm. or some shit. He was just a bad guy. This whole time, it was just People a bad guy. People would lose their fucking minds. I would love something like that. Well, it'd be, it'd be interesting, yeah. but like, and listen, I yeah, like the Mission Impossible movie. I'm just saying yeah. it's daring. You it's, couldn't yeah. do that now. Uh, it was a huge hit. It I was, love that It was movie. revolutionary at the time when it came out in 1996. You watch it now and it feels a little trim, but yeah. that was the appeal. It was really kind of terse compared to a lot yeah. of the other uh, uh, action films of the time. It and came it, out it the really same. only had one action sequence. It was just this big chase at the end on that bullet train. Everything yeah. else about that was suspense, trying not to get caught. Yeah, a lot of... what it's about. There's a whole sequence, yeah, where people are just dying. It's not really an action sequence. No, it's just a slaughter. Um, uh, it was... It came out the same summer as Independence Day, and mm-hmm. I think Twister also came out. That was and the, a big year. And The Rock. You know, a lot of big action. That was a really, really big year for, for uh, summer, yeah. Clunky garbage, but, you know, popular. Uh, I hate The Rock. <laughs> That's I know a, you do. Uh, I'm not a big fan. And and Independence Day. Uh, look, it's fun. I, look, I, I know you were 10. It's not a good movie. It's a, fu- um, it's a fun matinee. It's a fun matinee. That's that's what I'll go with Independence yeah, Day. It's got, a very it fun matinee. Good good comedic performances. It's yeah. light. Uh, really good special effects. Yeah. Uh, Sounds like. And then uh, it it but. In that big sea of action spectaculars, it did really, really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it weren't four years later. It took a little while. Came out with Mission Impossible Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, they decided to get another celebrity director, not Brian De Palma. Mm-hmm. They got John Woo this time. It yeah. was hot shit at the time for yeah. uh, Broken Arrow and Face Off. Yeah, and let alone just, his, just his, done some American films. Let alone his Hong Kong films, which are yeah. fucking legendary, like The it's, Killer and Hard Boy. I feel like around that time, that's when a lot of people started spreading the gospel of like his Hong, his Hong Kong pictures. Yeah, there was there was there was yeah. they were available, but uh, they weren't like mainstream. Stream, but like mm-hmm. around that time, they started home video was starting to release some more. Yeah. And um, uh, Mission Impossible Two was a very different beast. Yeah, uh, this one sucked. <laughs> I, Mission I, Impossible, I don't even disagree. Mission Impossible Two was dated like the week after it was released. Like yeah. it is so two thousands with the soundtrack, even its font yeah. is like you can nail that as two thousand. Uh, Peak Tom Cruise never looked more handsome than in that movie. Yeah, he's the only and, uh, guy who looked good in a mullet. They, um, they tried... It wasn't a mullet. It was just yeah, long hair. Yeah, um, he made it look like a mullet. But uh, <laughs> it, um, it tried to turn this Ethan Hunt character into more of a James Bond type. So there's a mm. lot of scenes of him driving around in fast cars and seducing women and mm. globe-trekking like one-on-one. The bad guy was played by an actor named Doug Ray Scott, um, who I learned is has been married to Claire Forlani uh, sure. for a good number of years now. I, I didn't know, know they were married, but um, yeah, he was he was a rogue mission. Uh, their their the name of their secret organization is the Impossible Mission Force. Yeah, IMF. And I love that whenever they explain that in a movie, they're just sort of like it's called Impossible Mission Force. <laughs> so, someone's five year old named it. Okay, I can't. I'm sorry, but um, yeah, he's a rogue agent uh, and uh, he's doing some evil stuff uh, regarding like a, a sinister virus. That he wants to unleash, uh, and in order to infiltrate his crime ring, whatever you want to call it, uh, they had to get a master thief played by uh, the great Tendiway Newton, uh, who is really good in that movie. She is uh, confident, charismatic, alluring, exciting in an action sequence, um... And the movie kind of fails her at the end. She just becomes like, oh, and now she's sick. And Tom Cruise has to do a motorcycle chase. Mm. And it, whatever. Look, the weird there, thing about that movie. A, there was a motorcycle fight in the movie Torque. Yes. That motorcycle fight is better than the whole of Mission Impossible. Too. I 100% and then there's, agree. And there's more of Torque. Yes. So 
That's true. No, you just I watched l- that one motorcycle chase yeah. and then realized, wait a minute, there's a whole movie on either side of that and it's just as awesome. Torque is fucking amazing. Mission Impossible 2 is not. I appreciate that the, I think the, I think it was written by Robert Town. It was written in uh, Chinatown. Yeah. Yeah. And he just flat out did Notorious. It's the same plot as the Alfred Hitchcock movie, Notorious. There's a spy. He recruits someone who used to be like the ex-girlfriend or love interest of a bad guy. Says, I want you to go undercover. You, no. want, him, you want him back. And then we'll fall in love and it'll become a whole thing. Notorious is one of the best spy movies of all time. Mission Impossible 2 doesn't know how to be classy. John Woo <laughs> is just swinging for the fences, yeah, doing was... wild stuff. Occasionally it's fun to watch, but mostly it just does not work. No, it's it's badly paced. It's yeah. just... Yeah. Uh, then it took an, another block of years before yeah, we came back years, with uh, Mission Impossible 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was J.J. Abrams' first feature film. He had just moved from TV. Yeah, he had done. Uh, uh, he made a big splash with a spy series called Alias, mm-hmm. which, true to most J.J. Abrams materials, started out great. <laughs> just kind of petered out. Petered out in the last couple of seasons. Yeah. But the first two or three seasons but, of uh, Alias are awesome. J.J. Abrams makes way more sense than either John Woo or Brian De Palma because mm-hmm. uh, he was a TV guy yeah. and he's adapting a TV show. What does he do? He makes a terse, trim, easy-to-follow spy movie and you know what? It's fucking great. I love Mission Impossible 3. Mission Impossible 3, 3 is pretty excellent, it's actually. A, it's, you, yeah, uh, you just rewatched it. I just rewatched it. It holds I, I, up quite I good. I saw it in theaters and I remember the criticism at the time was that it felt like it wasn't doing anything special with the genre. Mm. That's why I kind of like it. Yeah. It's the first time we didn't need to put a spin on Mission Impossible yeah. it was just like a good, well put together, straightforward spy. It's flight. an actual team um, again, full mm. of fun, interesting characters. And there's no twist with the the team. They're no. all they all just work together, yeah. and they all each, each have their skills. Yep. Uh, there's uh, a bunch of really fun action sequences in it. They're not as wild as stunt sequences we would get in the later films, but. They're very mm-hmm. exciting. There's a lot more personal stakes into it. Ethan Hunt gets married. That comes a threat. Uh, the villain, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, is a best villain we ever get in this well, series. He's amazing, and it's because of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Actually, um, something that's kind of cute about Mission Impossible Three is they're all uh, the spies in that movie are after something called the Rabbit's Foot, mm. and we don't never learn what it is. Pure MacGuffin, uh, it's, baby. It is completely Doesn't fucking MacGuffin. matter. What does it do? Like they even say at the end of the movie, what does it do? I can't tell you that. Like it's that. That's great. It's fine. It's good spy movie stuff. I'm glad and, they never uh, come back to it. There's a part when I was watching Dead Reckoning, and I was like. Are we going to oh, find no. out this was the rabbit's foot all along? Because uh, no, they could have. They, they could have. And it would have made um, sense, but they didn't. I'm glad they didn't. And uh, <laughs> on the page, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is a nothing character. They give him no personality. Yeah. He's just sort of generic villain. He just does but his because, job. Because they hired Philip Seymour Hoffman, he brought so much personality mm-hmm. to it. There's a lot of really cool sequences. There's a bit where uh, Tom Cruise dresses as a priest to infiltrate the Vatican. Yeah. Which will start this kind of theme throughout the Mission Impossible movies. Of that the Vatican? He's, pardon? Of the Vatican. The theme of the Vatican? The theme of... Sorry, is that what I said? You said... No, I'm curious what you're getting at. Well, it was kind of a joke, and it, you, you just didn't pick up on it, and now it's really awkward. I, I, I'm, and I'm not sorry. sure what you're getting at. I'm a, no, I was... <laughs> tell me what you were going to say. Well, he, because Tom Cruise is dressed as a clergyman, it's mm. setting setting up Ethan Hunt as this kind of righteous god figure. Yes. This, this uh, uh, intermediary, the Metatron, between... <laughs> Between us regular humans and the sort of inhuman realm that Tom Cruise has always kind of occupied. Mm-hmm. You look over uh, Tom Cruise's career, he he tends to excel when he plays these 
sort of heightened characters. He's not good at playing every guy. No, when he's playing someone who's kind of special, like Maverick or something yeah. like that, he tends to, to, even Magnolia, where he's like drawing all the attention to himself. Yeah, he's got, he's, he's a villainous character. Yeah, but yeah. but yeah, exactly. And I think, or Collateral, where he's steely, but he's a total badass. Mm. Like, that's what he really does. But I think it's interesting, because if you look at the original Mission Impossible, Ethan Hunt, being on his own, was supposed to make him seem more vulnerable. Mm. As the series goes on, Ethan Hunt on his own could take down the world if he wanted to. Yeah. And that's kind of the whole vibe of it. And honestly... When people are, are increasingly, over the course of the next few movies, mm-hmm. looking to Ethan to save them, looking yeah. for advice. Looking, like Ethan's, Ethan, they, they start saying lines like, uh, Ethan Hunt is the living manifestation of destiny. Yeah, like which is he, the stupidest line they, of dialogue. They, they start turning him into this kind of yeah. god figure. And you know, I thought that knowing where the series would become, uh, seeing that sequence where he sneaks into the Vatican dressed as a priest mm. was a little, little bit on the I nose. see what you mean. I see what you um, mean. But anyway, so, uh, Mission Impossible 3 is really good. People, it's people, really, really, really good. People don't tend to gravitate towards it because, again, it doesn't have the big stunt sequences, but as a movie, mm. top to bottom, excellent. Yeah. How do you feel about Ghost Protocol? Because I'm, uh, I'm I'm in the minority on Ghost Protocol. I've, I've watched Ghost Protocol twice, and I still can't remember it. It's like it <laughs> it passes it pass it's it's a wisp. There's a sequence in the middle. Yeah. Uh, that t- where the Burj Khalifa uh, the bridge the Burj Khalifa sequence. That's where a highlight they, of the whole series. They, they go into a room and they say, "Well, it's like the room we need to infiltrate is seven stories up and like mm. a few rows over." But because there's so much security in the building, we have to climb on the exterior of the building to get up there. And, and again, that's like, the tallest building in the world, yeah, and, and they're and, near the top of it. And they have uh, Tom Cruise has these uh, like magnetic gloves that let him stick to the glass, and mm-hmm. um, and then they don't work. And right. then they start breaking down, and that's a really exciting sequence. Yeah. Can you tell me anything that happened on either side of that sequence? The um. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yes, I can. But here's the problem with that movie. Here's the thing mm-hmm. with that movie. That movie is that one amazing centerpiece hmm. and a pretty okay setup. And then everything after the Burj Khalifa is vapor. Yeah. And the reason why is because it doesn't hold it doesn't have anything left for the second half. The villain of the piece is trying to like get a nuclear bomb and destroy hmm. the world. Fine, that's bad. We have no emotional connection to him. He has no emotional connection to any of the characters. He never even talks to Ethan Hunt hmm. until they fight in a car park at the end, as if we're supposed to be invested in that. So the whole villain plot, even yeah, even if it is just an excuse to do action, kind of just sits there. Yeah. The only emotional thing that happens in it is at the beginning of the movie, an IMF agent uh, is killed, and then we find out that a woman who was in love with him, played by Paula Patton, uh, was like wanted to get revenge on the evil spy mm. uh, who killed him. I think it was Leia Seydoux? Leia, yeah, well, she was the assassin. Yeah. So that could be enough to carry the movie forward. But then she kills Leia Seydoux in the Burj Khalifa sequence. So, yeah, so now there's nothing everything's left. Kind of, everything's kind of resolved. There's a, this is a problem with action movies. We've talked about this a lot, where sometimes action movies conclude the character or thematic storyline, and then they haven't concluded the action storyline. So, so yeah. there's still like 20 or 30 minutes of just explosions, which kind know. of entertaining in a vacuum, but we're, we're spent. We're, our emotional investment is dead. Hmm. Mission Impossible does that halfway through the movie in Ghost yeah, Protocol. Ghost Protocol. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't care for that film yeah, very that, much. I think that it, was, there's good stuff in it. It's an okay watch, but it's not great. This uh, 
sort of, I don't remember where sort of the turning point was with Tom Cruise, where mm. he started, there was a time in Tom Cruise's career, look at sort of his early stuff, he's seen as an action hero now. Oh yeah, he, he didn't he used to be. He wasn't, he actually experimented he was, a lot. No, he was, uh, he was, he was Cocktail, Color yeah. of Money, Days of Thunder, yeah, Far Rain and Away, Man, like he, Jerry he, Maguire, he, he made was, dramas hits. He, he made he made dramas and you know, comedies mm. and romances, like he did all different kinds of movies and he mm. always wanted to, I think, appear part of his... Because he's always been very protective of his, Im- his image. Yeah. Uh, he wanted to be sort of a much more a versatile actor, even though I would argue that Tom Cruise isn't a great actor. I think no, he's a, got limited range. With, with some of the some of his roles, he does great. I think when he plays villains like Collateral mm-hmm. uh, and Magnolia are two of his best performances. Mm-hmm. He had a great bit in Tropic Thunder as well, and that's I, also kind of a villainous I character. I like him in The Color of Money because if you're going to make Tom Cruise play a character who thinks he's hot shit and isn't, mm-hmm. putting him next to Paul Newman is a great way to pull that off. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but what he is is a great movie star. Yeah. He is handsome and magnetic. You want to see this guy. Mm-hmm. You understand why someone wants to point a camera at Tom Cruise. It doesn't matter if he's not a great actor. The, the, you still want to see a Tom Cruise There's movie. a reason Tom Cruise is seen as kind of bulletproof mm. in the media, despite the Scientology stuff, despite you know Katie Holmes having to have like secret cell phones in order to extricate herself from their marriage. These are like the kind of things that would really sour people on a lot of celebrities. Mm. But Tom Cruise has been very, very careful yeah. to maintain that image as much as he can, and he's gotten away with it, and he's, yeah, he's good in front of a camera. It's hard to deny it. And, and, which is really odd, because all he really has is that charm, and people yeah. will say Tom Cruise is sexy, but I've never seen a convincing Tom Cruise sex scene. No, he's, he's not a, a very erotic actor. No, that's the thing. Uh, is, I think that's actually something that people... I, I think the thing with Tom Cruise is that he's good-looking, Mm-hmm. But he's actually also non-threatening. Yeah. That's the thing. His sexuality is actually I, uh, very non-threatening. I think it's one of the reasons why Magnolia stands out so much. Because yeah, he was a very talk, threatening kind of guy. about his sexuality. And, yeah. and, and in a very threatening way. In a very uh, uh, misogynistic way. way yeah. yeah. Um, but, like, yeah, most of the movies, he's just affable and, like, a little cocky. But you can control him. Yeah, there's you know? a... a I read an essay by uh, Sarah Vowell once about Tom Cruise, and there was a scene in A, F- a Few Good Men yeah. where he's talking to, um, oh, I forget what character he's talking to. They come to sort of have a little bit of a heart-to-heart. Uh, um, Demi Moore. I think it might have been Pollock. Demi Moore's okay. char- character. Yeah. And it takes place in a park, and they're uh, mm-hmm. sort of meet, met in public. And the way uh, it was staged was they're on either, uh, either side of a, a chain-link fence. I remember that scene, yeah. That's Tom Cruise. Like, he's handsome, he's right there, he's going to talk to you intimately, but there's a fence there in between you two. There's glass between you. And that's the Uh, thing, and we're we're a little disconnected from that. I think think sexiness Mm. requires a certain amount of intimacy. Yeah. Even if it's fleeting, it's still intimacy. And there's something about Tom Cruise where even... There are very, very few Tom Cruise romance storylines that I buy. Mm. Uh, And I think one of the reasons... I think it's one of the reasons why Jerry Maguire works is because... He marries someone before they have an intimate connection. Yeah. And that's the plot. Mm. So you get away with it. That's the whole plot. They, he's, he's Cameron Crowe knows the, the, that that's actually something that Tom Cruise isn't great the, at. The, the, so he just saves it for the end. <laughs> so you never actually have to see them be really close. I, I think one of his, like, really clever, like, you knew Kubrick knew what he was doing. Oh, when he yeah. cast him and, uh, and Nicole Kidman as mm. a married couple that doesn't have a lot of sexual chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a scene at the beginning of the movie where they, like, start to make out and it's, 
we, like they're playing it's a little weird. They're playing a baby did a bad bad thing, and mm-hmm. it's supposed to be like this is their erotic moment, but it, it still feels off. And you know, Kubrick did that on purpose. Well, and then the whole movie uh, is about Nicole Kidman she plays his wife in the mm-hmm. movie, and she says, "I was so sexually aroused by a stranger who I didn't even talk to mm-hmm. that I seriously contemplated ending our marriage." Like in that moment, just that yeah. moment, I was so aroused by someone who wasn't you. I thought to myself, "Our marriage is crap. I can just I'll do another thing," mm-hmm. and that so destroys his ego that it sends him almost sleepwalking through New York City uh, from one ill-advised sexual sexual encounter. encounter, Yeah, 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 almost sexual encounter. Everyone responds to him sexually, but he doesn't have sort of that kind of sexual wherewithal to to have sex with anybody. He he walks through an orgy and never looks even tempted. Yeah. You know, it's just... And that's the thing. I think a lot of the Tom Cruise movies you remember are the movies that are about... Tom Cruise's ego that might celebrate it, like Top Gun Maverick, hmm. which is all about how, unlike the original Top Gun, uh, which was all about how Maverick had to become more of a team player, uh, in the, the the sequel, it's all about how the Navy had to be more like Maverick. So that becomes all about his ego. I did an article for Slash Film where I tracked down the one thing Tom Cruise ever directed. It was an episode of an anthology series from Showtime it was uh, produced by Sidney Pollack, had episodes directed by Steven Soderbergh and Alfonso Cuaron and Tom Hanks. It was called Fallen Angels, and every single episode was a different short film noir. Okay. Uh, and Tom Cruise did one called The Frightening Fremis, which is uh, based <laughs> on... like a, a Frotus caper. What is... I, I feel like I might be pronouncing it wrong, but in any case, it's from, it's from a short story by the guy who wrote The Grifters. Okay. And it is all about uh, Peter Gallagher, made up to look a lot like Tom Cruise in terms of his overall mannerisms, hair look. Uh, Similar look. He's married to Nancy Travis, who is made up to look a lot like Nicole Kidman. (laughs) And the whole plot of of the short film is the Nancy Travis character has just done a really big gig. They're both con artists, actors. She just pulled a really big gig. He took all her money and decided to go off and run a con on his own. He loses all of it. He gets conned. Mm-hmm. Then he runs into some other people played by Isabella Rossellini and John C. Riley. Okay. And then he thinks he's in on another con. But then he gets conned again. It's all about him realizing he's not hot shit. <laughs> and at the end of the fucking thing, Nancy Travis comes back. She's got a gun on him. She's furious at him. He apologizes to her. He puts his lips on her gun. Jeez, all and right. The, and the movie ends with him, like, basically admitting, thanks for seeing something in me. No one else does. You're the best. Here's the gun. She takes the phallical object, mm. and she puts it in her lap. Close credits. Wow. And I'm like... <laughs> That's pretty fraught in it. It's, it's kind of, like, it's hard not to look at it like something about, whether it was intentional or not, about... His ego, his yes. his ability to have that self confidence that has become his bread and butter. Hmm. So, but uh, yeah, there was some sort of damage to Tom Cruise's ego at some point oh, in, he, in the he, early two thousands. Uh, he he uh, had a few the, failures. The Katie Holmes thing, you yeah. might recall the the jumping on the couch with Oprah mm-hmm. made people like look at him in a kind of a, a more of a jokey yeah. kind of way. He got new representation. I think that was uh, a big part of it. Was yeah. actually his agent. Yeah, uh, and so he just he changed his career yeah. trajectory quite a bit, and he started focusing way more on action movie types. Um, yeah, a- action genre yeah. movies. He had a couple and sequels, of, and he kind of he had a couple of dramas that were real big duds in a row, like, like Valkyrie, Lions for Lambs. Lions for Lambs. 
programs. Yeah. So like that just wasn't working he's, for him. Uh, he's always been really good about working with interesting directors. And with the mm. Mission Impossible movies, he was the one, because he started mm. producing them after a while, mm-hmm. he was the one who's like the from the beginning, trying to bring interesting directors into it. Because mm. uh, Mission Impossible 3 is J.J. Abrams. And it was almost uh, David Fincher. Oh, what's that? David, David Fincher was working oh, wow. on it for a long time. Then Joe Carnahan was working on it for a long okay. time, and then they got J.J. Abrams in. So, yeah, like, there, then, was, uh, the idea was every film—it's almost like the Alien movies for a while. Every film no. would be a new director putting their own spin on it. Yeah, and then uh, uh, Ghost Protocol was Brad Bird, who yeah. uh, was previously an animation director. Yeah, he done so the Incredibles and Ratatouille, but Oscars for both, I think. Yeah, and he's done two live-action films, and they both were not very good. Uh, was that live-action one? Oh, it was uh, Tomorrowland. He did Tomorrowland I like that more than well. most people, yeah. but I, it, it doesn't quite work. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, uh, yeah. again, fast-forward another few years, mm-hmm. and uh, now we're up to kind of where what the series is known for. Yeah, and where Christopher was, McQuarrie took over. Yeah, Christopher McQuarrie took over, and he's done all of them since. Uh, he, this was, he, was a, he was a writer on Ghost Protocol. I don't remember if he was credited or not, but I've interviewed him, and he said he like rewrote that script a lot. Okay. Um, and he uh, he's, he won an Oscar for writing The Usual Suspects, mm-hmm. directed a few films in the middle. He did a really interesting film I really, really like called The Way of the Gun, which mm-hmm. I maintain has one of the best shootouts ever filmed. Because they all get trash in that shootout. It's, it, yeah, because it's, it's, it's not about being cool. It's yeah. about getting fucked up. Um, but uh, yeah, and he, that what he did clicked. Rogue Nation is awesome. Rogue Nation is, well, Rogue Nation I think it hit that James Bond sweet spot because there's mm. now a, a rival spy in the character of, of mm. Ilsa Faust played yeah. by Rebecca Ferguson. Yeah, she brought a and lot she, of good she's chemistry. She's a, a really film. badass character. Um, that movie came out the same year as Mad Max Fury Road. Mm. And those are very similar movies where uh, they're taking this long-running series that previously was about its male star, mm-hmm. but the new movies were about this sort of new female counterpart. Yeah, the, mi- uh, the, the male protagonists were centered but the women are the ones who actually had a story arc. And so really it was like a stealth film about Ilsa Faust. Uh, Ilsa Faust kicks ass. There's so many wonderful sequences in Rogue Nation. The hmm. motorcycle chase, the holding your breath underwater bit. Yeah, uh, the yeah. opening, the, they start with, the, this is the cool thing about that movie. They start with the biggest stunt. Mm. which is uh, Tom Cruise hanging outside of an airplane as it takes off, which he did. Which I think I missed that scene when I, when I saw it. So, <laughs> oh, my so, God. So I haven't seen that scene, but I've seen That's the rest of the movie. But, like, it's this incredible thing, and I was I, I interviewed Chris McQuarrie about it, and he was like, yeah, we kept couldn't figure out where to put that in the movie. Is that the big thing at the end? And they were like, wait, let's put it at the beginning, mm. and it will blow everyone's mind, because you usually save that for the end. And then the movie ends more intimately. It actually gets smaller over time until it's just about character at the end. Like, it ends with basically three people talking at a table and then a foot chase. And it works. Mm. It's really great. It's really intense. I love that movie to pieces. I think it's top to bottom probably the best Mission Impossible movie. Uh, It's my favorite. Yeah. I like that one. It's between Uh, that and three. But but Rogue Nation is better action. I I haven't revisited Rogue Nation. I've only revisited the first four because those are the ones that were... Well, I guess I saw the first one a bunch. But, um, yeah, fast forward another few years. We had Mission Impossible Fallout, uh, Mm. which was essentially Rogue Nation... Plus, two. yeah. Well, it was two, because the same villain, even. Yeah, it was basically the bad guy. We're going to break yeah. him out of jail. At the end of four, it was revealed that uh, Michelle Monaghan, who played uh, mm. Tom Cruise's wife in part three, mm-hmm. uh, was killed, but it, then it was revealed at the very well, end that she was still alive. Yeah, at the beginning of the movie, they revealed that she died between movies, and it turned out she was alive, but like in witness protection or something. Yeah, so. And so that was one of the things that made five weird, actually, was... In most movies, Tom Cruise's character and Elsa Faust's character would probably have an affair, 
but he was still married. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't really do that. Yeah. And then Fallout, she comes back, and that kind of gets resolved, and we find out she's remarried, and so they're they're fine. But yeah, Fallout has incredible action sequences, um, like like really good, like the 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 uh, part we dives out of a plane. They, which they really did, like with Tom oh, Cruise yeah. and like a camera guy, multiple oh, yeah. times. That's fucking awesome. No denying it. Um, the, it Christopher McQuarrie really nailed a certain kind of action tension. Mm-hmm. Uh, how things just keep ratcheting up and ratcheting up, and there's a helicopter chase at the end where people are dangling off a helicopter, mm-hmm. and uh, then they fall off a cliff, mm-hmm. and they start dangling off of the cliff, and now the hook is slipping, and like just all of the editing is just yeah. classic good. Good stuff. Plus, Some plus really that awesome amazing... fight scene with Henry Cavill. I was going to say, bathroom. and that the really amazing fight sequence where Henry Cavill cocks his arms before he punches a guy. <laughs> you've, seen, you've seen the gif. Uh, what I love about the gif is that it looks like when he cocks his arms, he grows a beard. Uh, I mean, it's lighting, but <laughs> it's yeah. Look, it's it just looks, lighting, but it yeah. looks like he grew like a Homer Simpson, like, like five did, o'clock shadow. Like and he like, gets so manly, his yeah. beard grows. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, I, I, and of course that, that one moment where he just sort of like shakes his arms has has been written about, I've written about it. And, Mm -hmm. uh, Henry Cavill has been asked, why did you do that? Is it just cause it looks cool? It's like, no, we were doing like three, we did this scene for like three fucking weeks. I was tired (laughs) and you throw enough punches, your elbows start to give out. So I had to kind of like strengthen up my elbows a little bit. Like it's kind of like. It's like cracking your knuckles. Like oh, I kind of had to straighten his arms a little I bit. I thought what he was doing was because he was wearing a long sleeve shirt. He was like stretching like, his arms out so, so that they wouldn't cuffs, be yeah. yeah, so they wouldn't be covering his hands and they wouldn't be all taut. Either way, it's fine. Mm. Um, here's my thing with Fallout. Fallout's a lot of fun. I do not remember the plot. Yeah, I yeah. don't remember the plot. Mm. I don't remember anything that happens. I remember like a, like a couple it, it of the gags to, to do in it or whatever. Il- but like, because Ilsa Faust was trying to like get her name cleaned in in the fifth movie yeah. and. And then in the sixth one, I think they just tried to do that again, even though yeah. she was successful. Oh, in, in oh Elsa Faust is back, but why is she trying to kill yeah. us? I don't fucking know. That's a weird plot point. We already established that. Why are you doing that again? Um, it's a fun movie, but I again, the story, not as good. Mm. And now that brings us not to... As, not as good? Not as good. No, great and good. Good. Yeah. Which brings us to Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part one, which, like several films this summer, ended a cliffhanger. Fast mm. X and uh, Across the Spider-Verse as well. Um, not as frustrating here because it no, actually concluded here. No, and also it's, again, it's that it's that TV vibe. It's mm. having a two part episode is not it's like that a, big a deal. not everything solved, but enough mm. is solved that it feels like a complete movie. It, it, yeah, this definitely feels like we've we've gotten somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, Fast X felt like a, a little bit of pulp adventure serial. Nothing solved at the end of Fast yeah, no, X, and, no, and that's kind of the appeal. I actually like how screwed everyone is at the end of yeah, that one. Yeah. It's not like the heroes had a minor victory, but there's still more to do. It's like, no, no, we're just fucked. Yeah, yeah. That's how I want to cliffhanger. Then, that's great. And, and Spider-Verse didn't solve enough. I feel like mm. we left, left every thread was left on time. I, I disagree with that one because I feel what Spider-Verse did was resolve Spider-Gwen's storyline, but mm. not Spider-Man's. I suppose so, so I feel like it's kind of well, got that, that, I feel that like what they, we were just talking about with they, they tied like the, Rogue, the central know? themes all into Spider-Man's uh, mm-hmm. theme so it was nice that we had sort of an arc for Spider-Woman mm-hmm. but it, it was it felt almost like an afterthought after a while I disagree with you on mm-hmm. how it hits but fair enough mm-hmm. um, so yeah Dead Reckoning uh, this movie has been in production for a while it got like derailed by COVID yeah, and, and, and so and boy how can you tell oh, um, yeah the film I'm going to immediately compare this to mm-hmm. is Kenneth Branagh's Death on the Nile, which okay. um, both had similar problems because they were both shot during lockdowns. 
And when you shoot during lockdowns, that means you can't have a lot of actors in the same room at the same time. Yeah. You can't have big crowd scenes. You can't have people close uh, up. You can't yeah. have uh, shots of four or five people standing abreast. Mm-hmm. You can only have single close-ups or double or twofers. Or, or, or maybe, more wide shots or, where or, people are standing far apart. Or like a really, really wide shot where everybody's standing far apart and you yeah. can't see their faces. And you have to communicate all of these characters. And these are both ensemble pieces mm-hmm. where there's a lot of characters usually in the room at the same time, and they all have to communicate using these little kind of lockdown close-up shots. Mm-hmm. Which probably Without, means they weren't in the same room together. Which means we are missing establishing shots. Mm-hmm. We're missing a vital part of visual clarity mm-hmm. that gives the movies a sense of enormity. Mm-hmm. If we're in a large room with a lot of people, you feel it. Like yeah. there's, there's always uh, in movies where they go to uh, Union Station, Oh, yeah, or, here in Los or, or, excuse me, our Grand Central Station. Oh, Grand Central Station, okay. Yeah. Um, there's always going to be a shot where they show the entire station from high above to see the bustle of the people in there. Yeah. Imagine not having that shot. Yeah. it's It makes it feel really kind of choppy, and it makes it feel like there's no sense of place. This could be anywhere. I feel like that that's true for a lot of it. It's weird because it's such a globetrotting adventure. They go mm. from, like, uh, this airport over here to the middle of the desert... To you know, the Orient Express back to Kenneth Branagh. Um, the thing that I think mitigates that a bit, and this is something I actually kind of admired about it, it is so episodic. Mm-hmm. We go here, we do this mission. We go here, we do this mission. Uh, I think that a great way to make a movie feel epic is to make it episodic, to make it feel like you've gone through a bunch of stories, a bunch of chapters that mm-hmm. have different personalities, different locations, different vibes. Uh, you know, that's why Lord of the Rings isn't just long. It really feels like you've been on a travel log. It, mm. Each location has a different personality and feel. Um, I think Dead Reckoning does that pretty well. I agree the coverage is choppy and that sucks. I mean, but the I overall... Mean, it really deals a blow to the movie. I, I, but, uh... I don't disagree, but I do think that the, the, the episodic nature of it helps mitigate that a little mm. bit. And the thing is, and the plot of the movie is uh, AI is bad. I, I love that the, the theme of the movie, and this is what I like about Dead Reckoning yeah. Part 1, um, the villain is uh, an, uh, an intelligent, it's, it's sentient. Yeah. They've argued that it's sentient. It can think for itself. There's this mm. AI mm-hmm. that's uh, locked in a, a submarine at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Uh, but it's able to reach out and infiltrate that, that, the world's computers. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but yeah, fair yeah. enough. Close enough. Close uh, enough. And that, that's not 100% right, but it's close enough. Uh, and Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise, yeah. wants to has seen the damage that AI can do to the entertainment, I mean the spy industry, mm-hmm. and he wants to destroy it. Because yeah. he is the one... Movie star, I mean, spy hero Mm -hmm. who can undo AI. Uh, Everyone else in the movie wants to use it or work with it or become its... Wield it in some way. Or or, or work for it, even. He's the only one who wants to destroy it outright. It has no uh, place. And that's why he's like the AI's arch nemesis. And so it's all about... It's a MacGuffin hunt, again. There's literally a key. It's in two pieces... You need both pieces. Uh, they travel third, around the world looking for both pieces. Third movie this summer to also do the we need to collect two pieces of a key plot point. It was Transformers and... Uh, and uh, um, uh, Indiana Jones. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess it was key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Well, it was, it was a two yeah, pieces of a... Two a, pieces of a MacGuffin have to go together. They need to lock together yeah. and then they can do a thing. Yeah. Um, and that's all the excuse he is. There's really not much more to it than that. 
Uh, there's a new character played by Haley Atwell. She's uh, much like, uh, and I, to the extent that I'm actually surprised they didn't bring uh, Tandy Newton back. Uh-huh. It's Tandy Newton's character from Mission Impossible yeah, Two it's... all over again. No, no, but it's... now it's played by Haley Atwell. No, yeah, Haley Atwell. She Who's great? A, she plays I a character her. named Grace. She's like a, a little bit of a pit, pickpocket. Mm-hmm. Again, I feel like if they had a, a chance to sort of edit this a little bit more casually. Mm-hmm. We could have gotten into her character a little bit more. Sure. Everything feels really hastily introduced, yeah. including uh, the Isai Morales character. He plays yeah. a character named Gabriel, and he's the bad guy. Mm. And he's got like a history with Tom Cruise, mm. which is annoyingly unexplored. I, mean, yeah, I guess we're saving that for the next one. Maybe so. I mean, the, yeah. we, we get enough that we understand, but it, I wish they would have explored it's it cool more. It's cool to have Isai Morales back in a big movie, though. Yeah. Because he's, he's a really good actor. You remember from La Bamba, but like mm. he's been like kind of relegated to like really tiny not great movies for a long time he was in one of the atlas shrug movies he That's was right. easily the best part of it <laughs> like he was really good well, isa morales is a he's talented a, actor no, he's a but fantastic uh, guy I'm, uh, I'm just glad i'm glad he's getting this big yeah. role i hope this gets him but more uh, work. not only do they not explain yeah. uh enough sort of his past with tom cruise mm. they don't explain what he's doing no. he's he's working it's explained it's, that like, it's like a mystery for, but it's not resolved very well yeah like he's yeah. working for the ai but we don't know why or how he got mm. to that point or like what he thinks meet? about that yeah like, like how, how do you get into that arrangement yeah. like, it's not it's not explained and he has also has this like badass uh like assassin thug played yeah. by palm clementi f from, who's great uh, she, knows, she, she's she plays exactly a really cartoony she, character well, so she's having a lot of fun here, here's the thing with this movie is this is the movie where I think officially Mission Impossible has become James Bond. This is a <laughs> Roger Moore James Bond movie. It's it's really over the top. It's really silly. The plot is ridiculous. We've got like the multiple, like I, I hate to use it because it's such a regressive term, but the James Bond girls, the prominent yeah. women in the male spy's life uh, who are evil, but maybe they're not that evil mm. or, uh, or can be worked with him or betray him or something. And that's kind of like the main centerpiece. Um, it's very globe trotty. It's very much a travel log. Hey, cool. Which we're going of, to Venice, which you know, to be fair, the, the previous movies have also had that quality. That's true. But, uh, but I think the, the emphasis um, here is on how like cool and grand that is. Well, it, and what I think I it's interesting that the James Bond movies gotten really dour. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why the mission impossible movies in the last 10 years or so have gotten more popular is because they've gone in the opposite direction, and a, they're the fun globetrotting one. Upbeat a, a little bit. Yeah, and the, the problem was uh, so severe, and now it's fun. Yeah. Uh, what James Bond still does, even in the Dower era, and I, I imagine the next one will be... Um, la- it'll be whatever we need, but... Um, yeah. They've always sold a lifestyle. That's the, yeah. the the shtick with James Bond. James Bond gets to drive cars and stay in nice hotels and drink expensive yeah. booze. He doesn't hide that's out a, in a warehouse somewhere. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. a big appeal of James Bond. That's uh, true. That's true. In fact, uh, one of the plot points in this movie was very curious. We finally get to know a little bit more about IMF. Yeah. And how they recruit new agents. Mm-hmm. And it's and this is where we get into that sort of. Uh, sense that Tom Cruise is above it all sense mm. because being inducted into IMF is sort of like entering the priesthood. Mm. It's this very ascetic lifestyle where you have to devote yourself entirely to this spy life. Yeah. And, and the you have like to you, live in yeah. these really dire circumstances. You're giving you're up rarely, your previous life. Yeah. yeah you, you're giving up all sense of your agency to work for the, the agency. agency. Yeah, uh, and, uh, yeah, it, it feels like you've essentially turned yourself into a, a benevolent action god for the the protection mm-hmm. of the world, and they'll never know, never know who you are. Yeah, it's a hidden life all over again. <laughs> 
He's referring to the Terrence Malick The Terrence Malick movie. Yeah, that's so snooty. I love it. Because remember that scene in A Hidden Life where he drove the motorcycle off a cliff? Woo! I'm not going to war, motherfuckers! (laughs) I'm dying for my principles! (laughs) Christianity is anathema to war! I love A Hidden Life. Um, But yeah, it doesn't have that same kind of propulsive excitement, I think, because editing is a huge problem. Sure. Uh, And that they're... They didn't explore the AI enough. I'd like to know more of uh, AI, like the personality of the thing. Yeah. Like what does it, it should be able to speak or like have some mm-hmm. sort of uh, avatar that can speak yeah. for it. Sure. Who says this is what the AI wants. Mm-hmm. Think of something well, like. Well, Sam um, does have that in like one or two scenes. A but, bit, but it's, but it's vague. It's, uh, not, it's not like it actually has like the speaker of the yeah, thing. Like, it, it, it doesn't to, get to interact. It needs to say like, I want a better world. Um, remember, uh, it's it's a crappy movie, but Avengers Age of Ultron. Yes. Was a, a movie about an AI. Uh, Iron mm-hmm. Man invented an AI. It spent five minutes on the internet and said oh i gotta wipe out humanity which uh, is the most believable part of the movie yeah and <laughs> every time i go and it on manifests itself minutes, as, as like, like no. a, and it manifests itself as the super robot it yeah. says I, I gotta destroy humanity how do i do that i know practically mm-hmm. i'll just make my own comet on earth and somehow lift it into space and then drop it on earth yeah that because that's easy to do that's the easiest way i suppose so you know we have nuclear bombs yeah and it's a computer just I know. Just blow them up. You don't even have to make a robot. Whitney, body. I don't disagree with you yeah. that Age of Ultron is a bad movie. <laughs> Age, Age of Ultron is quite bad. It's quite bad. Uh, but you know, at least Ultron like was played by James Spader. It had a right, voice. A lot of personality. It was kind of, yeah, it had a lot of personality. That was that was the saving grace of that. Like seriously, that was casting James Spader was brilliant because James Spader mm-hmm. knows how to just talk. Yeah, and he just give it just him any of, dialogue will make it interesting. Uh, so yeah. the the AI got to say. I've looked at what humanity has to offer, and I think it's it's all garbage because you go to war. So I'm going to just like he actually spoke his yeah. motivation. It's simple supervillain motivation. Mm-hmm. It's not interesting, but at no. least we had that element of it. I, and I, I wanted that from the the entity in Dead Reckoning Part One. What I wanted from the entity in Dead Reckoning Part One again, maybe in Part Two they'll go here, and I hope they do. Um, I wanted it to be beyond that. They'd say the entity does a variety of things that are a little inexplicable. Like it breaks into all of our most secure things and just doesn't do anything and leaves. And they figure it's like, Oh, it's saying it could come back and do whatever it wanted. Maybe it's saying it could do that anytime it wanted to. And it doesn't want to. (laughs) Yeah. There's no, maybe it's saying it doesn't want to do anything. Maybe it feels bullied by humanity and just wants to fuck off and be its own thing. Maybe we're the assholes, yeah, which it brings I've, I've us seen... into you know fantasy AI rather mm. than the actual realities of AI, yeah. which uh, is not that level of sophistication yeah, and intelligence. I, but I, still, I've seen enough Star Trek to know that uh, whenever an AI mm. turns up, you're going to have to figure out what its consciousness is all about, what yeah. it what it wants. How how do you respect this thing as a new life form that you've yeah. created? None of that's brought up in no, 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 in no, no. Uh, Mission Impossible. No, no, and and. The movie Transcendence is more thoughtful about AI <laughs> okay, than it is in this movie. Wait, let's not say things we can't take back. Um, <laughs> I defend Transcendence. No. I think it's fine. I, I, here's what I will say about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. Um, it's really long, but it didn't feel very long. Hmm. It did chug along. I agree the editing is choppy, but... That, the, the final every, every sequence on the train is that, good. That's but really yeah. cool. Like, there's, there's enough exciting bits, sporadically... Sprinkled just often enough throughout mm. that I wasn't bored, right. and I was genuinely kind of entertained. And I thought to myself, 
I like this James Bond movie better than I've liked all but one of the Daniel Craig James Bond movies. Okay. So, I'll take... I kind of miss it when it was Mission Impossible. (laughs) And it actually was more about, like, you know, teamwork and Mm. sort of, like, rather than just... The the mission, the heist, yeah. It wasn't just about one badass who people say ridiculous things about, and he's the only person who can save the planet over and over and over again, to the extent where, why do we keep questioning him? Every single there's a bit where like two like lackey characters they're like um, they're like the the weird southern sheriff in uh, the early Roger oh, Moore movies die, uh... yeah like he just keeps showing up and chasing around because someone has to we needed to fill space oh uh, who who's, it wasn't Tony Goldwyn it was Tony Goldwyn looking guy no it was, it was uh, Shea Wiggum Shea Wiggum Shea Wiggum in the movie and I forget who plays the, the other dude but he plays just a general agent who's like there to like. Chase down Ethan Hunt because Ethan Hunt has gone rogue for the umpteenth time. And even he's talking to his henchman and the or sidekick or whatever. And he's the guy's just saying, like, every time he goes rogue. And every time he's right. Mm. Maybe we should trust him? Maybe we should trust him. Like, seriously, this mm. always happens. He never goes back. at every opportunity to. God knows we've pissed him off enough. And he still does the right thing every single time. What are we doing? And it's a fair point. <laughs> so, yeah, again, it's it's reasonably entertaining. It's certainly not the worst uh, Mission Impossible movie, but honestly, the, the the overall quality of the series is pretty high. So I'd still put it in the bottom half. Yeah, it's but it's, it's but it's fun. I, I don't care. It, it's it's not unwatchable, but no. it's. The, the 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 quality I value most in action films, and I've said this plenty of times, is is just clarity. I, sure. I want to know uh, I want to know the plot pretty well, mm-hmm. and I want to see visually things pretty well. Um, yeah, you, you do it's that, a low bar, really. Yeah, if you think you, about you it. You do that, and I'm going to be with your movie, even if it's not great. I'm going to at least you know understand what's going on and enjoy action it. Action movies are often about simplicity. We're, yeah, we're and, not uh, necessarily looking to complicate things. Just uh, make it too, so we can follow. Too it. many action editors feel like more edits equals more excitement. Yeah. Michael Bay introduced that shit into yeah. the, the vernacular. Well, he popularized and, uh, it anyway. Popularized it yeah. and. Uh, and that robs films of clarity. Yeah. And, you know, you watch a Michael Bay film, it's just visual noise. It's Mostly, nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that's, I think, some place where the Mission Impossible movies, even especially the better ones, have really excelled. Mm-hmm. We know where everybody is. We know what they're up to. We know what their skills are, what they're contributing to this mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, these things were have always well, been edited really, really well. Well, that's only they even carried um, over from the show. It was always mm-hmm. about we're presenting you with what we're going to do. Here are the tools that we've got. Yeah. And we're going to try to accomplish something, and we're going to explain why it's impossible, and everything it's going to, all the effort it's going to take to pull it off anyway. Mm. Except in the series, it wasn't about hanging out of airplanes and shit. It's yeah. just more stunts now. Mm. So yeah, and yeah, but Tom Cruise does a really impressive stunt. Yeah, couple, couple impressive yeah. stunts. Yeah. Good for him. He's, he's, he's de- determined to sacrifice his life for our entertainment. It's interesting that everyone's just like, ah, oh, no one can do what Tom Cruise does. And I'm like, Jackie Chan. <laughs> well, that, that we're comparing a, a 60-year-old Tom Cruise to Jackie Chan, I think, is impressive. Because that's, I, that's fair. Tom Cruise has turned his life into being Jackie Chan. I, I, listen, now. listen. I'm not decrying the stunt work. Hmm. I'm just saying, let's not pretend he's the first actor to do that. Yeah, yeah. Buster Keaton had a house fall on hmm. in the silent era. It was just math. There was no trickery. We just measured it out. They he's measured the, it out. If the house falls, and mark and he survive. If nothing goes wrong, you will fall through this window and everything will be fine. If you move a half inch to the left, you will be obliterated. 
And there were people on the crew, when the camera started rolling, they couldn't look. Mm. Actors risking their lives for entertainment is uncommon, but Tom Cruise did not invent it, not even close. And I just want to give credit where credit is due. Fair. Because some people act like he's the only person who's ever done that. He is not. Um, anyway, Dead Reckoning. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Uh, it's time to move on. What do you want to talk about next? Uh, tell me about um, the documentary you saw, The Black Ice. Oh, Ice. okay. Yeah, That's interesting. Because it's a hockey documentary. It right? is a hockey documentary, and I am not a hockey guy. Okay. I know very little about hockey. I've never been to a hockey game. Uh, I've never really watched okay. an entire hockey game on television. Right. I've been to hockey games. Hockey, hockey's pretty exciting because it's, it it. it's fast and it's violent. I've if, liked if hockey movies. Mm-hmm. Goon is great. Go- Goon, Last of the Enforcers is also great. I didn't see the sequel. It's pretty I, good. I, I uh, kind of pieced together the first one because it was at the yeah. theater where Wh- I was playing. Wyatt Russell plays like the corrupt version of the main character who oh, like fun. goes mad on the Sean, ice. Sean William Scott yeah, yeah. yeah, the star of those movies. It's really good. I <laughs> love the Goon movies. They're way better than they have any right to be. Um, I've seen I've seen a lot of hockey movies. I like hockey in principle. I've never really gotten into any organized sports. So no disrespect to hockey. I'm, I've learned a lot about hockey from watching this documentary, Black Ice. Black Ice focuses on hockey, uh, specifically in Canada. They do talk about some of the NHL. Um, oh, hockey doesn't exist anywhere. Like Canada owns it, as Canada far does. as I'm concerned. It kind of does. Um, it's a Canadian sport that other countries occasionally play. That's that's how I see hockey. I, I don't even disagree. And we learn how how true that really is in this documentary. Black Ice is specifically about the history of racism in hockey. Oh, okay. That's specifically what it's about. We mm. focus almost entirely upon uh, black hockey players today. Mm. Uh, the future generations that they are teaching, uh, and also the kind of secret history of people of color in hockey. Um, it turns out that some of the things in hockey that we take for granted, really big things like the slap shot, where you lift your hockey stick in the air and you hit a puck really, really hard to try to get it through the net. With a lot of force, get it past the goalie, right? No, it goes goes through the air. There's yeah. literally a Paul Newman movie called Slapshot. It's arguably the greatest hockey movie ever made. Please watch it. It's an excellent movie. It's Great fucking one. movie. Um, I was invented by a black hockey team that has almost been completely erased from history. Like they're not on the books. They were like the, the people who were like looking into the history of this were shocked at how much history there was. With this black community, they had a black hockey team. That was ahead of their time in a lot of ways. And the history of racism in Canada, it's not necessarily part of the national identity people identify them with. If a lot of people ask, like, which country was more racist, you'd probably say America. Honestly, you'd probably be right. But there's still (laughs) a lot of racism in Canada that has been kind of tucked under the rug. And this movie is about exposing a lot of it. Exposing the history of this community that got destroyed by racism. Uh, these black sports heroes who did not get their their due because of racism. The many great black hockey players who were denied an opportunity in the NHL because of double standards. Um, and the black hockey players now who 
you might think, oh, things are getting better, right? And no, they're still encountering a ton of racism from the fans, from rival teams, even their own coaches. Really shocking racism, too. Mm -hmm. Like, just completely, like, holy shit. And the many ways in which the, not just the fan community, but also the actual people running hockey have devised to just sort of throw that under the rug. One, one guy has even said, uh, someone said, like, hey, this guy did this racist thing to you, but it's just that one guy. You just, just let it go. It's just that one guy. And he says, how many just that one guys does it have to take Mm-hmm. For this to be systemic, because I've run into a lot of those guys, and they're everywhere. Yeah, and these are people who love hockey, and it means something to them, and they really just want to be hockey players and not have to deal with really shitty racism, any racism, but like, it, it just why isn't it? Why aren't we there yet? And that's a documentary. It's wonderfully filmed. It's got a lot of really illuminating information. This, I, I, I imagine if you know a lot about hockey, you won't learn quite as much as I did. Because okay. I, I had to go kind of in with like zero knowledge. And I learned a lot. Uh, but I got a, lot, uh, got a lot of respect for the people in the documentary. I learned a lot about the history of it. It's very fascinating. So I will give this... Maybe the highest recommendation I can give a documentary, which is if you're not interested in the subject of this documentary, maybe you should see it. Mm-hmm. It was interesting, and I learned a lot, and I'm glad I watched it. Oftentimes, documentaries are made to sort of cater to people who are already interested in the subject. Yeah. Not all of them, but a lot of them. This one works both ways. Great. It's an infant. A, a, a film is meant to entertain or enlighten or inform. Sure. And I think this one did a very, very good job. Um, that's it. I, I've no, I really don't have a lot more insight into it beyond that, other than I really thought it was quite well made. And I wish I had enough knowledge of hockey to delve into it more thoroughly. Okay. And to be able to say the way I could, for example, if it was a documentary about something that I knew more mm. or had more of a baseline understanding of, I could say, well, they didn't cover this as much as they could have, or uh, this wasn't entirely accurate, mm. or this is totally new. I, like, these are things I cannot tell you about Black Eyes. But what I can say is that I, I do recommend it, and I thought it was really riveting. So, kudos. Uh, do you want me to talk about another movie, or do you want to... Because uh, 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 I've only seen one other this week. Right, I'm a little, little about, behind this week. I'll so talk about another uh, movie. We'll, get, we'll get at least one other. Let's end with the horror movies, there. and I'll talk about uh, the new comedy, Theater Camp. Uh, Which I, I wanted to see this one. because it, it's, it's very uh, up your alley. It's I'm very a, up your alley. You and I are, are both sort of... Uh, Dejected theater kids. Yeah, I did a lot so, of theater so when gonna, I was in like There's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of things we probably recognize. Yeah, this is a new film. It's directed by Molly Gordon and Nick Lieberman. Uh, Molly Gordon also co-stars in it, uh, and it stars a lot of people. Uh, ben Platt from uh, mm-hmm. that one uh, that one musical everyone hated. <laughs> Dear Evan Hansen. Dear Evan Hansen. He was Evan Hansen. He was. Uh, no, he wasn't Evan Hansen. He was the... You're right, he was. <laughs> Evan, Sorry, Evan Hansen was the dead guy. No, that was just me being off the cuff and not thinking it through. Uh, you're right. He was, But he was the star of the film. Yeah. Uh, he It was a big hit on Broadway. He, I think he won an award for it. And then when they made a movie of it... Um, well, two things happened. Uh, one, he had aged out of the teenage character a lot. And when you're not in the back of a theater, it's obvious and it's distracting. Mm. And that's just time. That's just time. It just... 
it's like it's like when Chris Columbus did that movie version of Rent, and then the whole movie is about people in like their early twenties figuring out their lives. Yeah. But he insisted on reassembling almost the entire original cast, and when they're, they're all the, forty, they're like, yeah, like thirty eight. And years it old really undermines the entire thing. Like I get what you think you're doing, but it's a bad idea cinematically. It did not work. Mm. The other thing that happened with Dear Evan Hansen is that uh, people because there's a line in Babylon where Brad Pitt's character is a movie star, he's talking to a theater star, and he says, to you, if your play reaches a thousand people, that's a hit. For me, that's a flop. <laughs> I reach millions of people. So all of a sudden, Dear Evan Hansen was exposed to a much bigger audience than everyone before, and th- once it hit a lot more people, enough people were able to go, everything about this is fucked up. <laughs> you, see, you put this in a movie, it doesn't work out it as well. It doesn't work. It's a little more no. in the abstract realm of a theater. It, it, you might it be able to get away with better. it. Yeah, yeah it doesn't, doesn't really fly. So cats have the similar problem, where in a theater where it's immediate and tactile, and they're like literally mm-hmm. on out the stage. Out in the audience with you. You, yeah, can, yeah. you can go along with it much more. It really makes more sense in that form. So anyway, Ben Platt had a rough intro to a lot of people as a movie actor here he's quite good kudos um the story is this there is a theater camp it is a camp for uh kids and teenagers uh they go to this summer camp every year and they put on various shows Mm. Uh, that's it that's that's their basic premise at the beginning of the film it is a documentary much like the waiting for guffman kind of thing and the whole idea is that we're going to follow the director of the camp, um, oh, why am I blanking? Amy Sedaris. Amy Sedaris was oh, the director wow. okay. of the camp. Nice. Uh, and she's going around and she's trying to like you know drum up admi- uh, admissions, going to like uh, every like high school you know musical production, and tell parents you know we got this great theater camp. And the like the second scene in the movie, she collapses and falls into a coma. Hmm. And the whole question is, what's the documentary going to be about now? And now it's about how they're going to save the camp. Because the camp is in dire straits. And it falls to her son, uh, played by Jimmy Tatro, uh, who is like a TikTok business bro who's never done any business. Oh, jeez. He's not a theater kid. He doesn't understand it at all. He thinks he knows everything about business. He doesn't know a goddamn thing. And it's up to him to try to save this camp while all of the... Uh, all of the teachers are trying to actually teach these kids under difficult situations. He has fired most of the staff and hired one person to do most of their jobs, and she's faking it. (laughs) She doesn't know how to... Like, there's a bit where she's like, she's got to teach stage combat, and she says, goes up to the class, okay, class, what is stage combat? No, tell me, what what is stage combat? <laughs> That's a great bit. That's cute. That's a very great bit. Um, the uh, the two main uh, camp teachers who are putting on the big musical, and it's a musical about the life of Amy Sedaris's character, are played by Ben Platt and Molly Gordon. They went to theater camp as kids. Uh, she was in love with him. He turned out to be gay. Uh, and they've had this very kind of um, uh, codependent friendship ever since. Their acting careers never went where they wanted to, and now they come back every summer to this camp and teach, and this is, like, where they are big shots. Uh, Except she's starting to get a little restless with that and wants more, and he just is totally happy. Hmm. He's he's fallen into this rut, and he's made the rut his thing. Um, 
And that's basically it. It's it's they're gonna put on shows. They're gonna try to save the camp. There's an evil camp that wants to like <laughs> buy. The, because of course there is. There's always I'm an evil camp. I'm starting to picture like Wet Hot American Summer it's, here. Or it it's gets a little absurd. Hot, it's got Wet Hot American Summer vibes. Patty Harrison plays uh, the woman from the uh, uh, the evil camp. I love Patty Harrison. She's so great. Um, she plays some person from the evil camp, and she's got like weirdly unexpected sexual chemistry with Jimmy Tatra's character. Like, oh, it's not like she's manipulating him. Like, she's genuinely into him. But why? Because he's such a doofus. She doesn't get it. It's kind of funny. Um, that's it. It's, it's, let's put on a show to try to save the camp. It is done sure. in the documentary style. It's funny enough. Here's what it boils down to. Okay. <sighs> It's really, really funny in the first half and loses steam in the second. Is it mm. bad in the second? No. It's just not as funny. Okay. It starts focusing more on the drama, which is fine. We're getting more invested in the plot. But we're here to laugh, and the first half is very, very funny. Lots of great one-liners, lots of great, you know, sort of ad-lib performances from very funny theater actors. Um, there's a... No, I can't, I can't do the bit. There's a bit about, like, when to show you, like, like the costume designer guy. Okay. He's just like, okay, now here we're seeing this is sort of an Elizabethan thing. Uh, this is where we're really showing off the clavicle. And you really got to know when to show off the clavicle. Once a week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for clavicle once a week. That's a funny line. I, I turned out I could do it, I guess. Um, but yeah, it just loses steam in the second half. That's just basically mm. all there is to it. It's, it's cute, though. Hmm. And that's the thing White Hot American Summer was able to do. It wasn't a documentary, so, but it was still a broad comedy at camp. Funny throughout. Yeah. Miraculously, that movie is consistently funny throughout the entire thing. There is, If there's a gag that doesn't work, it's alone in a crowd <laughs> of funny gags. And we just move on from it. Um, this way, yeah, it's just, it, I don't think this is going to be, I think this, I think theater kids might gravitate towards this, young and old. Hmm. And you might recognize it. I see myself here. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't fall in love with it, but it is very cute. And I would tell people if this sounds like the kind of thing you would enjoy, this is definitely a, a pretty good version of it. Okay. All right. Um, let's talk about, uh, tell me about, uh, the movie you saw. Yeah. Cause it's yeah. a new horror movie on Shudder. Well, I'm with a horror movie I saw. Tell me All about right. Quicksand. Uh, Quicksand. Um, uh, we we've talked uh, endlessly about sort of what uh, what Shutter does. They've mm-hmm. been very good. Uh, they're typically very well curated. Not a huge number of movies on Shutter, and I know they know you can't get to a thousand movies anyway. Mm-hmm. So they have like maybe two hundred, like one hundred and fifty at a time, which is still yeah. plenty. And they're they're adding uh, new ones yeah. every month, every week, and, and a uh, lot of the older stuff. It's really well curated. It's usually yeah, stuff that we're uh, seeing. A, yeah, a lot of what they do um, in terms of their originals or the independents that they're distributing. Uh, they tend to go for something that's really striking in some way. Even if it's not a great movie, it's kind of novel. Um, imagine, like, scenes from a marriage meets something like Open Water, where it's a couple trapped in a desperate situation, mm-hmm. but they're going through a divorce. That's the premise of Quicksand. Awkward. Yeah. So, um... Are they, are for, they stuck in Quicksand? They're stuck in Quicksand. Well, that makes sense. That's the title of the movie. Okay. Then I give but, away uh, the plot. <laughs> it's like, no, no, that's the premise of the movie. Okay. It's fine. But uh, the, the, unfortunately, the movie has no faith in that material. It's not going to um. be about the marriage. It's going to be about terse thriller music and people are going to die. And I think mm. everything's kind of scary. Like they're, the music thinks this is a horror movie when really this should be like an intimate drama. It sounds like a radio play. 
Almost. It, it would probably mm-hmm. function better audio. Because the opening sequence is like these two hunters are out in the woods of Columbia where the quicksand is. Mm-hmm. And they're like running and there's a lot of handheld camera work and it almost looks like found footage for a second. And something horrible happens and they die. It's like those characters have nothing to do with anything. Oh, they don't relate no. to the plot. It's just, okay, we're setting the tone. This is going to be a thriller. Does it, does it reek it, of a reshoot in order to get some some excitement in the opening it sequence? It feels like it. It feels yeah. like they didn't have enough... Fa- First of all, the movie's already like 83 minutes, so they needed mm-hmm. something to pad it out probably to a feature length. Mm-hmm. And they said, we're going to need to throw in something to, to assure viewers that this is going to be a thriller. And that's really upsetting because it's actually more interesting when it's not a thriller. Um, Let me look up. Uh, there are two main characters. There's um, Carolina Gaetan. She's a Colombian actress. Mm-hmm. And she is uh, married to uh, an actor played by Alan Hawko. He's Canadian. Okay. Uh, she's from Colombia. The character is from Colombia. And they they have some kids. They've left the kids behind so they can go on a hiking trip in Colombia. Not to save their marriage, just to sort of mm. bid it farewell. Okay. They're, they're breaking up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This they, is, this is the closing chapter. Yeah. Um, they kind of resent each other, but there's not a lot of, like, hate they're, they're not like sniping at each it, other it feels like this would in, in a comedy this would be like they get on an adventure together and find themselves and by the end. Again. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. A, that's something going as far back as the 30s yeah um no this this is they're not gonna bond again uh mm-hmm. and you know while they're out sort of on this hiking trip they step into some quicksand um and Luckily, it doesn't look like sort of the comedy quicksand, and the the movie's pretty quick to point out that quicksand actually sucks you under when you struggle, when you kind of yeah. like wriggle down into it. Yeah, it's like a finger cuff, really. If, like yeah. the more you struggle, the more tight. If more you stay still, you'll just stay still. Yeah, like they know how to not sink in the quicksand, so they get stuck in it. They kind of sink up to like their elbows, so they're they're kind mm, of that's stuck. bad. But they're yeah. kind of stuck and they can't reach the edge. Yeah. Um, and they're facing each other in the quicksand. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of looking at each other. You think this is going to be therapy, right? Yeah. No, a snake attacks. Okay. And it's a python, but it's a poisonous. Like, it's, it's clearly right. a python, but they say this is a poisonous snake. It bites okay. Bites him. They have to, like, hold a knife with uh, its lighter and you mm-hmm. kind of stab each other. There is a little bit of interrogation as to uh, the nature of their relationship. And they actually do talk a little bit, but... The filmmakers are just don't want to let the actors breathe. They don't want to let them have their moments. They just Which want to play weird this. because that's the whole premise. Is the whole premise moment. Is like, like let's have stuck this here. moment. There's we're stuck yeah. together. Here's where we are. They keep on cutting back to like this other crime plot, like back oh, in a Colombian prison somewhere. That feels and where there's oh, criminals no. out in this woods, and that's why they're running from something. Oh, like there's no, no, this no, no, crime no, no, element no, no. to it, which they, is completely unnecessary. When you have a movie. premise like that, like yeah. the the desire to constantly cut away through it, like like an episode of Lost, yeah, like the like backstory and shit. No, find ways to film the single location in an Just, interesting that's way. That's the best thing or, you can do. Write it well enough that it doesn't matter if the filmmaking is flat. Here's what you do. Here's here's the thing. And the, uh, Stephen King, mm-hmm. master of this, um, and you'll see it in a lot of the movies too. The Shining, Misery. You have characters who are stuck in a situation. Keep them there. When you cut away, you're cutting to people who might be able to save them. There you go. So the suspense: Will they make it? Will they not? Mm-hmm. But then the trick is, they can't <laughs> because they die or some other shit happens. But their effort helped. Yeah. That's the trick. And it feels like there's, there's like, like a redemption coming, like you're anticipating yeah. that. And when it's interrupted, yeah. that like makes the horror all the greater. Like that's what, like yeah. Halloran shows up in The Shining, but ah, it didn't work. But he did bring a working vehicle that they're able to escape in at the end. Mm. That's how you do that. Yeah. yeah. 
It's brilliant. Oh, yeah. it, it, it never fails. Just keep yeah, doing the, that. Uh, Finding the stepfather. Yeah. 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 Um, nothing like that. It's just like yeah, there's hunt, hunters and crime, criminals. Seems so straightforward. Uh, yeah, it, it should have been just about... It, it should have been a walk and talk, but they're stuck and they talk. Um, <laughs> stuck in quicksand and they talk. And how do they get out of quicksand? And, you know, and of course, there's the, the desperate things. They do have a gun with them. There's a little they bit of controversy. Shoot the quicksand that, until that, it dies. That they brought a gun and not, like, some other more practical things on this hiking trip is a little bit strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they address that in dialogue. I, I appreciate yeah. that. Um, the lead actress is really very good. Oh, okay. I'd never seen her before. Carolina Gaetan. And, um, yeah, she... She's taking the material uh, pretty seriously. I like that the characters are actually kind of sad and depressed throughout this movie. Mm. Why does the music think this is a thriller? <laughs> it just keeps on yelling at us and pounding and banging and having those spooky violin mm. chords. It's like, no, this is completely the wrong music for this kind of a movie. It's completely wrong photography. It's all like mm. shady and moody. I understand Shudder has a bit of a mandate to stay within a certain genre. Sure, but... They're not going to show a Bergman movie. They might show Hour of the Wolf. Like, that's as deep yeah. as they're going to go. They, they, they'll occasionally um, show something a little off the beaten path, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. but for the most part, they're at the horror network. So, yeah. um, that's... The only thing that indicates this is this is a horror movie is those horror, those well, superficial elements. They're like in the music peril. and the editing. And they're in peril, and... Yeah. But would you call something like, um... What's another, like, lifeboat. desperation? Yeah, Lifeboat. Or uh, I, there was a movie recently called Fall, where there's two, Fall was two, great. two people caught at the top Fall of was a gigantic uh, ta- uh, radio tower. Yeah, I like Fall. The Fall. Fall. Fall knew what uh, to do with that premise. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was a movie called Frozen, not the anima- uh, the no. animated film. No, but, uh, it came up before, where people were stuck on a ski lift yeah. overnight. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, we That's we, we did a commentary track for a film called Buried, which yeah. took place entirely inside a coffin. yeah. A with dark Ryan coffin with Ryan Reynolds. With like yeah. a sandy, all he had was a cell phone. Like trying mm. to like, ugh, or, that's or a, a bleak fucking movie. It's, it's, yeah, I, I came at a time when we were in a bleak mood as a, as a yeah, nation. Jesus um, Christ. Uh, I still or, think about how depressing the movie is sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or uh, it's, it's actually a really great movie. Say what you will about James Franco, but mm. he was in a movie called 127 Hours. Yeah, yeah, there you which, go. That's, yeah, that's a, a desperation a, film. Another yeah. desperation movie. And those movies mm. are very kind of thoughtful about sort of mortality. Quicksand doesn't get to that level it's yeah. it's sort of in the same genre but it doesn't have the quite the the bite or the thought mm-hmm. or the cleverness like yeah. the things that they need to do that are resourceful to get out of the situation the score thing reminds me of something one of my favorite books about filmmaking was written by Sidney Lumet mm. it's called Making Movies it's really really good it's short it's concise textbook did, textbook great textbook, textbook. Yeah. yeah it's absolutely worth a read but one thing he hammers home it's very important he says is when you're making a movie your job as a director is to make sure that everyone is making the same movie. Hmm. Because it's very easy for one person to think you're doing something that everyone else isn't. Yeah. We have this tone. We have this theme. We have this style. Something. If they're at odds, then it's going to feel inconsistent. And that's what it sounds like is happening with the score. Where the score is going for something that everyone else wasn't. Yeah. yeah. Which is unfortunate. It's hard to say if that was like a note afterwards. It's not suspenseful enough. Pick up the score. But uh, that's a shame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like there, there was something that could have been done with you know mm. divorced couple, yeah. divorcing yeah. couple like has to sort of face their face each other like literally, literally while yeah. they're while they're stuck facing each other in the dirt. I mean, think of the symbol symbolism yeah. of that. They're just they're literally stuck in the earth. Yeah. Like, think of like Lars von Trier oh, doing something like. I mean, that would be. I'm depressed just thinking about. Yeah. That. <laughs> I was thinking of something like Antichrist. Yeah. Jesus. But, yeah. 
Or, or, you know, or, or heck, Bergman could have done I, something I, like that. I'm just imagining, uh, like, a punchy, effective Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode. Yeah. You know? That's or really a, all it is. Yeah, or, you know? It's a, it feels like a one-act play. You know? And it, it could have... There's so much that could have been interesting, and they just kind of took the, the boring thriller path, and that's, yeah. like, the least interesting path they could have gone down. That's a shame. So it, it, it is a pity. All right. Well, the horror film I saw... It's called Final Cut. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, it is a remake of a Japanese film called One Cut of the Dead. Excuse me. Here's the thing with One Cut of the Dead. I had not seen that movie until I was getting ready to watch this remake. Mm. When that movie came out... (coughs) Excuse me. A little bit of water. Um, When that movie came out, it initially was like hard to find, so it hadn't been properly received distribution in America. Uh, but it had a cult. People were, were saying it was great. And then it finally came out on digital, and everyone said, this movie is fucking amazing. And I don't know why I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. I literally have no... I could not tell you. The, the, the basic premise of the movie, and it's more complicated than this, but the basic premise, what you should know going in, is that it is about uh, a low-budget film crew making a zombie movie and then they are attacked by real zombies. And it's all done in one shot. Oh, okay, yeah. Hence one cut of the dead. Um, that's all you should know going in. I'm going to avoid talking about anything else for a few minutes. There will come a point where, in order to discuss the films properly, I will need to discuss more. But I will tell you when that comes. We recently did, a couple months ago, or maybe a little longer, an Iron List episode where we talked about the greatest movies about movie making. If I had seen one cut of The Dead before then, it would be on my list. It is legitimately, in addition to being a funny horror thing, it is an absolutely wonderful film about independent filmmaking. (laughs) And, And the creepy, weird, zombie version of something like uh the australian comedy the castle okay or uh or the comedy the dish which is from the same filmmaker just lovable weirdos in in a bizarre situation making the most of it through passion and gumption and force of personality uh i love one cut of the dead to pieces (laughs) it is fantastic uh michelle hazanavicious uh, director of The Artist, it won Best Picture. A lot of people look back at The Artist and say, oh, what a bad movie. It's actually a good movie. It's it's a little mawkish, but it it's earns its sentimentalism, I think. It's a well-made homage to Silent Era. Uh, Jean Dujardin is legitimately great in it. Berenice Bayot, uh, also legitimately great in it. Uh, she's in the remake Final Cut as well. I think she's married to Michelle Zanavicious. Hmm. Um... I like the artist a lot, and I think one of the worst things that could have possibly happened to the artist was it winning Best Picture. Because it's so slight, people got mad at it. Yeah. I think if it hadn't won Best Picture, it would be a lovely film people still talk about today. But because it's the Best Picture, we have, everyone has a chip on their shoulder about it, and that's a bummer. Uh, he's done a remake, and the remake misses the point. <laughs> it kind of gets it. It also kind of doesn't. And part of this is because it is trying to... It tries to make a joke out of it, but it's trying to copy the original 
too faithfully in some regards, like not adapted to, to French, which is the new one set in France, um, which is not that funny a joke and it really doesn't contribute to the film a lot. And whereas the original film was more about the, the moxie of independent filmmaking, this new one, because it's bigger, it's slicker, um, it's far more about filmmakers trying to make something out of tawdry material. Yeah. Uh, which feels like you're talking down to the film. And indeed, the film that the characters are making in Final Cut versus One Cut of the Dead hmm. is more pointedly a bad film. Oh, okay. like Like, they're, they're intentionally making it look like a bad film. Huh. And I feel like that's so, approaching like the material for from bad things. Yeah, like, like that's the deal. But I think they're also selling it wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think ultimately that undercuts the idea that this can be art. And I think it ultimately sells the whole premise short. Now, I am going to discuss... Should I even... I'm going to, I'm going to just leave it there. All right. Yeah, I think you should just leave it there. Here's what I'm going to say. I know there's a big twist partway there, through. There's, there are twists in the movie. Yeah. I did not expect them. Okay. I did, At least when I saw One Cut of the Dead. Obviously, when I saw Final Cut, it covers it very, very faithfully for the most part. There's a few changes, but mostly the same film. Um, they do the thing that like the Human Centipede movies do, where like the original like exists in this universe as like, a movie. Oh, uh, so it's not a remake. It's kind of a sequel. It is, but, it's still, but here's the deal. Everything in the original still happens so, oh. to people when they're like not even on camera. Oh, so like it's, it's, it's so it's like the thing. It just where it's a prequel, but it's the same it, story. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't I, I can't without going into too much detail. I can't explain to you why that feels so arbitrary and doesn't work. Mm. Like it just doesn't make sense in the narrative at all. Um, so I'll just say this: know as little about it going in as you can. Hmm. Watch the original. It is currently on a Shutter or it's on AMC stream where you can rent it from other places. Uh, watch it. It's wonderful. Like, I love it. I want to show it to more people. I'm embarrassed that it took me this long to see it. If by some chance you see the remake first, you might appreciate it more than I did. Because at the very least, you'll have that sense of discovery as the story unfolds and how it goes in some unexpected directions. Um, it, you might appreciate it more than I do, but the Japanese original version is a legitimately better version of this that isn't just, um, uh, it's got more strength of conviction. Okay. It feels more earnest. It feels more, uh, honest about itself. Uh, it, and I think it actually, again, the movie within the movie is a better movie. And I really think that helps a lot. When you're making a movie about filmmaking and the movie that the characters are making is... It's one thing if it's like you know, hard to follow or weird, but if it looks incompetent and it's not supposed to be, mm. or the characters shouldn't be doing that, that feels that feels like a lazy joke to me. Huh. And I feel like One Cut of the Dead doesn't make lazy jokes. It actually makes really complicated jokes, even though they look kind of simple on the surface sometimes. Uh, and I feel that Michelle Zanovich's version uh, doesn't get that. So mm. it's not terrible, but it's a it's a huge step down. So I'll leave it there. No spoilers beyond the little I've teased. Um, so yeah, that is the new reviews for the week. 
Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. It's time to do uh, our review rundown, where we review movies on a scale of C- to C+. The lowest a movie can get is a C-. Uh, that is a movie we don't recommend. That is below average. If we give it a C, that means it's average. There's some good, some bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, more for one audience than another. You know, just okay, not great. Uh, and uh, then C plus is above average. Those are movies we legitimately 100% recommend. Uh, on that note, uh, final cut. I'm torn because I want to give it a C if you've never seen one cut of the dead and a C minus oh. if you have. Uh, well, you have, right? I have. So give it a C minus. I'm going to give it a C minus. <laughs> it's not, it's, it, it's again, if you've never seen one cut of the dead, oh. you might like it more than I did. It's a C minus. One Cut of the Dead is like a C plus. Would have made my best films of the year list. It's that good. Remake eh, doesn't not, not doesn't capture it. Unfortunately, there's some good bits. Some actors are good in it, but Bernie Spiel, wonderful, but not great. Um, let's see what the the, the quicksand. Quicksand a C minus. Uh, yeah, fun, fun premise, but they turned it into like schlock. They tried to turn something interesting into schlock, and unfortunately, they succeeded. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, let's see. Uh, theater camp. Uh, theater camp, uh, charming, well-intentioned, runs out of steam, going to give it a high C. Okay. There's definitely people who are going to love this movie, they're going to think it's a C plus. but for me, really good, just, just a really above average, no, not above average, above average average. <laughs> above average to average. It's, 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 a, it's a high C, All it's right. a high C, but you, C. you might like more than I do. Uh, Black Ice, C plus, excellent documentary, very informative. Uh, very intense sometimes. Um, I learned a lot, and I recommend to people who don't follow hockey, which is impressive mm-hmm. for a hockey documentary. And then finally, Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning. Uh, it, it's a C. Uh, it's mm. not a complete wash, but it's not an interesting action film, especially as these things go. Great, great set pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stunt was impressive. The train sequence is really fun. I do like the theme that it's Tom Cruise versus AI because that's yeah. kind of what he's trying to do as a movie star. Yeah. Um, but I feel like the filmmaking is so slipshod, mm-hmm. especially as these things go, which tend to be very taut. Mm. Uh, it really turns it into something kind of average and, and kind of dull to watch in certain sequences. Yeah. Um, so yeah, see, it's it's a, a, a bit of a, a mishmash, a mixed bag, if you will. Mishmash impossible. There you go. Um, Mishmashing. Yeah, I I, uh, I liked it more than you did, but I'm still going to give it a C. It's a All high right. C. I think the set pieces and some of the characters, some of the moments are really, really fun. Uh, but, yeah, overall, I find it kind of fading from my memory a bit like Fallout did. Mm-hmm. Where, like, I'm enjoying it in the theater, and now that it's, like, a couple of days later, I'm like, eh. Hmm. Like, it was pretty good. I'd watch it again sometime and probably have a decent time. Uh, but... Yeah, it, it's one of those things where maybe the second half will be stronger. We'll see, and then we'll kind of look back at the original and sort of reevaluate it a little bit. But as of now, yeah, this is this is a, a quite good, not great action movie nah. thrill ride. But I, I will say this: as James Bond movies go, it is that. Let me put it this way: much like I'm going to like said, I qualified my final cut review. Uh-huh. I'd probably give this a C plus for a James Bond movie. But it's not a Mission Impossible movie, and I think that's something that I think is 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 not insignificant. That this series had an identity, and it kind of just took over someone else's. Oh wait, that's Mission Impossible. Touche, hey, actually. Pull, pulled off his mask. <laughs> Touche, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess. Well, anyway, still, I'll still give it a high C. But yeah. uh, that's it for uh, that's it for this week. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with reviews of Oppenheimer 
and Barbie and Cobweb and maybe something else. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, you can. Uh, did, did, you, did you disagree with us? Did you think we, 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 we screwed something up this week? Do you just want to hear us talk about something you want us to talk about? Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. If you want to listen to this show and all of our new programming uh, without ads, you can head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash network. Uh, we have a lot of tiers over there uh, for $1 a month. Uh, you get all of our shows without ads, and you get uh, all of our Think Godzilla, It's Friday episodes one week early. Mm-hmm. As you go upwards, you start getting exclusive podcasts like All Our Yesterdays, where we review every single episode of Star Trek in order. Uh, uh, only the Best, we review every single uh, every single film ever nominated for Best Picture, and every single film ever nominated for Best International Feature. Uh, we've got Discord Hangouts, commentary tracks, the whole lot. Um, it's a lot of fun, and we're very grateful to all of our patrons, without whom this show would not be possible at all. So if you have the means and can contribute, we would love to have you and give you all that exclusive stuff. If not, you want to support the show, please subscribe, leave us a review, even one sentence really helps us uh, uh, fight that AI algorithm. <laughs> uh, so that would be great. And of course, we're on uh, social media. We're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim, and everywhere else, uh, I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Sackett. Uh, and uh, yeah, never forget, everyone's a critic. I'm sorry, what?